Your work is beautiful and thoughtful and we need more of it. Your work is black. Right? <laughs> Lurie's is so nice with it. Your work yeah. is black. And that's nice too, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Larise Bell with Ron Whitmore, and this is Evanston Rules. Sometimes you meet people and you feel you've known them for a very long time. I immediately felt that way about Janet Dees. Janet, a curator at Northwestern University's Block Museum of Art, is a force to be reckoned with. In this episode, she talks about her process curating exhibits such as the recent exquisite A Side of Struggle, an exhibition that examines how anti-Black violence has consistently informed artists' works in American art. While A Side of Struggle is unfortunately no longer at the museum, you can still pick up a copy of the exhibit book when you go to visit. I met you a few months ago at a show and I became an immediate fan. Your work is beautiful and thoughtful and we need more of it. Your work is black. Right? <laughs> Lurie's is so nice with it. Your work yeah. is black. And that's nice too, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those are not mutually exclusive categories, despite what some may think. Yeah. <laughs> How long have you been at Northwestern? I've been at Northwestern since September of 2015. I'm the curator of modern contemporary art. So that means that I work to develop original exhibitions that are on view at the museum, as well as work with my other colleagues on the curatorial department to help build our collection with a focus on diversifying the collection so that it can support teaching and learning at the university. And there's a lot more that's involved that I actually end up doing on a day-to-day basis. When you joined the museum, what did the collection look like then? And what is it looking like now? Well, when I joined the museum in 2015, I was coming after part of a series of changes initiated by our current director, Lisa Corrin, really with the eye of making the museum more open, making it more integrated into the university's life and teaching and learning mission. We have about uh, almost 6,000 object collection at the museum that's focused mostly on photography, prints, works on paper, work that is dealing with the life of Chicago and WPA photography. And the collection was overwhelmingly white, overwhelmingly male, overwhelmingly U.S. focused. And part of the vision was to think about how to build on our traditional strengths in photography and works on paper, but to create a collection that was more diverse in terms of the American artists represented, but then also more international in thinking about areas of strength within the university's research. So something that we worked on together was how do we get more contemporary African artists, photographers, printmakers into the collection. My focus has been primarily on the work of African-American and Native American Indigenous artists and sort of helping to expand that. I am so happy that they brought in someone who is Black to do this work because often we find that the people brought in to tell our stories, to find our stories, to learn more about our stories are not us. Yeah. When I came to actually interview for this position, one of the things I talked about in my interview was this exhibition, the seat of this exhibition, the site of struggle, right? That I wanted to do an exhibition that was exploring 
this issue of anti-Black violence as a part of a country. And then I thought to myself, okay, if they're not afraid of that, <laughs> this is a place that I can come to work, right? And I've been fortunate with the colleagues here that they really are about doing this work and are open to acknowledging when they've made missteps, but also course correcting along the way. I love to watch The View. And they were having an interesting discussion because there's a controversy around folk that aren't Indigenous, Native Americans, Africans. And some of the conversations with the ladies on that show was, how arrogant is that? You may sympathize, you may be able to talk about it, but you can't describe the Black experience unless you live it. So on your journey to where the museum is today, how heavy was the lift? to get people comfortable bringing the explicitly Black perception into the museum? I have to say, with my experience at the Block Museum, the lift wasn't as heavy as, as it has been in other places. Just because I'm an African-American person, right, doesn't mean that I automatically have expertise in African-American art history or in African-American history. It. It's something that you have to work to acquire. And I think similarly, there are people who are non-Black who work really hard, right, to acquire that expertise around our history and our culture, and that needs to be recognized. But I think what you're saying about in terms of lived experience and reality and having that perspective will give you a different perspective, right, on that expertise, and that, that has to be accounted for. Uh, and I think in being in that, so you can have productive collaborations productive scholarship by people who are not Black working on, on, on these topics, but who also understand, who have a good understanding of their positionality and kind of collaborating with people who are bringing in Agreed. different kind of perspectives. So with the Black, being at Northwestern, being Evanston, how have visitors responded to its theme? It's, it's interesting, actually. One of the things that we have been doing to kind of get a sense of what visitor experience has been, we do a lot of facilitation of group visits and having conversation with folks afterwards, and then also conversations with my colleagues and visitor services and what is the feedback that they're giving an individual conversation. And one of the things my colleagues did was to do like a word cloud about the comment cards that we were getting. And the biggest kind of word was powerful. And so the response uh, have been along those lines of maybe it's like difficult and challenging to engage with, but necessary and powerful. And there's been a lot of expression of like appreciation for the care that went into understanding that engaging with this work is not just like an intellectual exercise, but it's an emotional and psychological experience. And so how do you support folks in, in that experience. So the things like the meditation and the resting spaces and the reflection room and limiting the amount of the number of artworks so it's not unnecessarily overwhelming and having controlled sight lines to the more, more graphic material. Like these are all things that have been commented on. Both Ron and I have seen the show and man, it was powerful. Mm. And there are pieces some of I was familiar with, artists I was familiar with, mm -hmm. but it it I had to I had to take deep breaths. How was it for you putting it together? 
It was a lot of deep breaths. You'll see in the, in the credits, I had a curatorial research associate that worked with me on the project, Elisa Swindell, who's also a Black woman art historian, who's now gone on to a job at the, the museum at Dartmouth College. And we would have these kind of end of the week check-ins, having that support and the community of other scholars of color who were working on it was essential. And like knowing when you needed to sort of step away. I remember in doing the research, there's a sculpture by the Japanese American artist, Osama Noguchi, that like, if you didn't know better, it looks like it's a dancer, right? But it's actually, it's based on a photograph of a lynching that took place in Texas. What happened was this man's body was burnt. They burned his body after, and so it contorted into the shape. And then seeing that, that was like, okay, that was all I could do the rest of the day. I just like closed, I had to move on and separate. So kind of constantly like checking in and knowing when to move away from the work. But also I used to play certain songs or things that kind of help metabolize that energy, right? So sometimes I have my Mahalia Jackson playlist. Sometimes I'd have Talib Kweli, like whatever the, the, you know, you need to tap into certain different kinds of energies, you know, ancestor energy. And I would use the music as a vehicle. Um, to help with that process. It, yeah. it, is, it is so interesting to watch you explain just that exhibit and the place that I saw it taking you to. Mm-hmm. But those feelings are very, very real. And I'm just so amazed, not only by the exhibit, but, but by you and your passion behind creating that exhibit. Because emotionally, it had to be a daunting task to relive all the reality of what Black people have gone through in America. How do you talk about that in your classes? One of the things we did in the exhibition that was actually a suggestion from our chief diversity officer at the university, who's also a Black woman, Robin Coleman, was to do that video of different interviews with myself and other folks who worked on the project with that question, right, about like, why do we do this work? And then how do we sustain ourselves to like personalize it? But then, as you said, I'm teaching a course this quarter, it's an undergraduate seminar that's sort of rooted in the exhibition, but sort of considers this larger history of art and visual culture and its relationship to the fight against anti-Black violence. And I had them read two articles by two different professors who were talking about teaching around lynching photography, as an example. And the things that they had to consider bringing the material into the classroom, how diverse or not your classes, how the material may hit different people, the ethics around presenting this material for them to think critically about if you were in this position, mm. right? What are the things that you would consider? How can we talk about that together and then go forward? And what's amazing is the artwork is inspired by the pain and death sometimes of our people, the Theaster Gates fire hoses or mm-hmm. the Osama Noguchi piece, which was from a photograph. They're photographs, but they're real. Mm-hmm. And often there were people who were observing these things and participating in them. And there's so many layers that mm-hmm. kind of make me breathless. That was a person who was lynched or there was a, that was someone's child who was burned that Noguchi made this art piece about. So we're talking about real people. And how do we sustain this moment and make it into the movement? Because what you've got here is a heavy dose of CRT. It's what so many people are fighting against. Mm -hmm. 
And so I applaud you. I applaud the block Mm. for doing this. I was speaking to someone I know who knows someone who came to the city and she was suggesting that they come to see the exhibit. And this person said, she came from Minneapolis and she said, if I want to see that kind of thing, I can just go. I live in Minneapolis. I can go to the George Floyd site. Mm-hmm. And this person I know was just speechless. Mm-hmm. But this is what some people think. They don't mm-hmm. understand what, what it is and what mm-hmm. it means. Well, I think first, one of the things that was important to me around the way this exhibition is framed is that it's the, the kind of the historical parameters of it, starting kind of with like Ida B. Wells in 1895 as a starting point in her anti-lynching activism and going all the way up to the founding of Black Lives Matter in 2013 is kind of the historical brackets. What I wanted to do with the exhibition is to put the now into this longer historical context, right? To kind of work against like these, what we're dealing with now as if they're these like isolated contemporary incidents, but like tying them to this longer history. So all of these works are not focusing on African-Americans as the victims of these things, but like looking at the perpetrators and the spectators. And one of the things that a lot of white visitors have actually, in our discussions, have talked about is how much those pieces resonated with them, right? Because oftentimes there's this focus on victims, but not the sense of like, well, you didn't lynch yourself, right? There's, right, in thinking about who are perpetrating these crimes, who are spectators, and then also how this is an inheritance and kind of has shaped part of socialization, right? It's something that's passed down. And so I think that's something that's a one like unique aspect that a lot of white visitors have shared has really resonated and kind of caused them to really rethink their own position and how this history relates to them. Lori's brought up the whole critical race piece and the dog whistling about, we don't want our children to feel bad. I don't think it's about children feeling bad. I think it's about the truth. Mm Yeah. I know I'm just I'm just having these like flashback to like like Tom Jackson's like confirmation <laughs> about her very adeptly going around the questions around critical race theory as like a particular academic lens that's looking at systemic oppressions and particularly thinking about the legal system. But everything that is just history is like fact. There's this thing that's a theory, but then this is what happened. Like we don't need a fancy theory to say this is history and that it's important. Important to understand the full spectrum of what happened, right? So you can understand where we are now and then what we're going forward. She was so eloquent uh, <laughs> when she said, I don't believe that any child should be made to feel as though they are a racist or not valued or victims of oppression. I don't believe any of that. That's what she replied when she got asked the ridiculous question about critical race Mm -hmm. by Ted Cruz. Mm -hmm. So I went on a college visit with my kid and we went to the East Coast. We were looking in the Western Mass area Mm -hmm. and we went to visit schools and I just kept seeing, and this is no surprise. Mm -hmm. So you've got the museum, you've got the collection, but when you walk the halls, the history doesn't look at all like us. Mm-hmm. And I grew up going to these schools, and I don't know that I ever really thought how oppressive it is mm-hmm. and how exclusionary it is to those of us who don't look like that. Mm-hmm. And I know Ronnie would probably say, send them to an HU. 
right? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but how can we make that different? And, and how can we do it so that we're not waiting any mm-hmm. longer? Part of the programming like I orga- organized around the exhibition was this series of conversations with different museum professionals around different topics. And with the exception of two of the guests, they were all Black women who had worked in different institutions across the country in museums and universities. So from John Till Robinson from Tuskegee, <laughs> who worked at Spelman in Tuskegee, to Kimberly Pender, who's now who's the dean of the Yale School of Arts, who's a Black woman who taught in Chicago for many years, to colleagues who have actually left museums because of some of these challenges. And I think you have to kind of decide the path forward based upon the path that you're going to take forward in doing your part. The group of colleagues, several of whom have worked in museums and were like, it's too much, too much cultural white supremacy in the places, spaces that we've been in. And we've worked and we've tried some of the things we've done is to try to leverage those institutional resources to do things outside of the space that's more based in community. Or we've just decided to take the skills that we've learned and just to do community projects, community driven and focused projects altogether outside of those spaces. I think for me, and I know kind of this maybe comes from my personal experience. I grew up in primarily New York City suburbs. My father was a minister, family or families from Alabama and came of age in the, the 40s and the 50s. And part of the work that he was doing as I was growing up was the integration of Methodist churches in New York. And so I think it's, I reflect upon that a lot, that that is part of, part of my legacy, that sense of getting out and doing the work, but also kind of staying tied to what the, the larger like picture is. So you don't get just kind of completely sucked in and lost right within that system. So one thing that I'm really committed to is mentorship. So I have taken place in a lot of like formal mentorship programs by professional organizations that have connected me with particularly young Black professionals, but then also informally at the university, like with, with, with students, like that's something that's really like important, like giving that support and sharing like the insights that I've gleaned from 20, over 20 years of working in this field. You mentioned a little bit about your father kind of integrating. Mm-hmm. Do you remember any of those experiences as a young child? I do. There were all Black churches that we pastored, and I remembered those experiences very vividly. And I also remembered that process of people who left the churches <laughs> because of that, right? Who had been in places a long time and they couldn't abide. And then how those congregations changed over time to be more diverse. One of the, the towns I grew up in, Long Island, in the late 80s, the local fire departments had like a trophy that the Ku Klux Klan had given them in the 20s and they still had it on display and my father and other faith leaders in the community organizing around that. Also the kind of public school system that I went to at the time that I was in it, particularly in junior high and high school, there was almost an even amount of well, Black students, white and Hispanic students and a small population of Asian students and how by coming up together in that environment, all of our understandings and our outlooks were changed. So like, I remember when we were all getting ready, looking at colleges and stuff, my white friends, like looking at these schools that they were going to and like 
they're being like these places are so white like <laughs> like how am I going to so also like the sense of like growing up in an environment where where we're growing together and how that experience has impacted each other in a, a kind of consciousness it, I think it gave me a sense of like people like not automatically being irredeemable because of the color of their skin in either direction but you know also being being realistic about what you're facing and challenging how it can fundamentally change the your outlook and the way that you move in the world so growing up what did you want to become i was really always like good in math and science actually i went to college to be a computer science major like academically, like focus on math and science, say in junior high, high school, but in music and in art, I played mm-hmm. the violin and I played the piano. I was on like the art and literary magazine in high school. And, but when I went to college, I had this idea that I was going to go into the sciences, particularly at that time in the nineties, there was a lot of focus on like the dearth of particularly Black women, but African-Americans in general in the STEM fields. And so if you had that aptitude, there was a lot of pressure for you to go in that direction, right? But uh, what I realized is I had the aptitude for it, but it wasn't, I wasn't passionate about it. And I remember my first art history class and how engaging it was. It was like my brain was like on fire. Like this was a discipline through which I learned so much about history about politics, about philosophy, about the history of religion, like all through studying art. And that really captivated me and found like I found like a home. And then I just was like, didn't have to just go about the work of figuring out, okay, well then what do you do? Right, (laughs) it was an art history degree. And that was like the next part of the journey. So you've been in Evanston since 2015. What's Evanston like? We've got it on the news. People outside of Evanston are now, oh, reparations. Wow, Northwestern, mm-hmm. you being here, what does it feel like for you? So I work, I work in Evanston. I have to admit, I'm not an Evanston resident. I live in Rogers Park, which is your, your next door neighbor. Evanston. Adjacent, Evanston adjacent. Oh, yeah. Evanston. And I think for me, like Evanston has been this kind of continual process of discovery. Before I came here, I had lived in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And initial impression of Evanston let me say I'm not going to move like from New Mexico to Chicago to live in a neighborhood where I'm the only black person <laughs> and, like I was in New Mexico that was my initial right impression right coming from the outside seven eight years ago but the more time I've spent here I feel like it's this continual process of kind of understanding the deep history of African-Americans in this area. I feel like there are many Evanstons. <laughs> this is my perspective, you know? Um, so I know like the kind of ecosystem of the university, which is its own thing. And then those kind of selective spaces like within Evanston that I've, you know, have started to get to know. I'm only, I feel like I'm only in the beginning of that process. Oh. So what's next? Well, I'm already actually working with three other colleagues on an exhibition that will open in 2025 that is actually about presenting an art history of the Chicago area from the Indigenous and Indigenous perspective. That's about like nothing about us without us. That is really starting with community and getting a sense of what the urgencies are and then what we as the block are like best positioned to take on and what we have no business getting involved in that might be best handled in a better space. And so I'm deeply involved in that in that process now. Where are there avenues for that intercultural sharing? 
and how can these ideas that we're bringing forth from a kind of community-based practice maybe transform how work is done about all art and not just art about African-Americans or about Native American culture. So, I thank you for taking the time. Mm-hmm. We, we want to include sharing the culture and knowing that we aren't a monolith and we have different ideas and different beliefs. And mm-hmm. if within ourselves, we can recognize that, then I believe the world is our oyster. Yeah. Beautifully said, yeah. <laughs> thank you. You're awesome. Thank you. I think you're fantastic. And thank you for your interest in making the time. And then also, I hope that we'll just have the opportunity to continue having other conversations outside of this format, but Absolutely. over a coffee. <laughs> I mean, when you first met you, you're her new best friend. Okay. <laughs> right? So what I know about Larice for the last 50 years, is that when she says it, just invite me to the conversation so I can listen. I promise I'll take a lot. <laughs> Larissa and I would like to thank our guest and newfound friend, Ms. Janet Dees. While a side of struggle is unfortunately no longer on display, the Block Museum of Art is a destination in Evanston not to be missed. To purchase a copy of the exhibition publication, A Side of Struggle, American Art Against Anti-Black Violence, we have included a link on our website at evanstonrules.com. See for yourself this haunting and powerful work. We are so grateful for the outpouring of support as we continue to have conversations that are honest about Evanston and the Evanston community. We would love to hear your comments so that we can continue to enhance our work. For Loris Bell, I am Ron Whitmore. Thanks for listening to Evanston Rules. Evanston Rules can be found at evansonrules.com, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and through our partnership with the Evanston Roundtable featuring past episodes. Listen to understand.